0: Welcome to a new edition of the Scout with Brian podcast, where today we're going to have a riveting discussion, an exhausting discussion, a fatiguing, tiring, grit and grind discussion on load management. I've been inundated with thousands upon thousands of messages on Twitter asking for my thoughts on load management, and I'm here to tell you I will gladly deliver, Uh, forgive me. I just, you know, had to spend a couple weeks first uh responding to um all the Bill Gates uh haters. Uh the millions upon millions of people that I discovered on Twitter who actively believe that Bill Gates, uh one of the biggest philanthropists, humanitarians of of our time is actually a giant asshole um and didn't earn a dollar of his money um and basically just stole it all uh from labor and should be required to give it all back. Um and I'm a bootlicker and instead we should give the money all to the government so that they can mess around and screw it all up. Um and yeah, Bill Gates should give back about ninety eight percent of his fortune, uh is basically what I've discovered from people so that we can uh immediately, instantly and efficiently uh solve uh poverty homelessness uh hunger global warming um, basically you name it if you just you know give Bill Gates' money uh, to the government you know or some some charities that i 'm sure have no flaws whatsoever themselves uh we can obviously then cure all of the uh world 's uh ailments so again it 's all just brand new breaking info that I discovered on Twitter in a ex- in uh, after moderately defending, uh, Bill Gates for saying that, uh, you know, he's, he's been taxed at $10 billion so far. And if you tell him he owes 20 billion, he'd be perfectly fine. But if you tell him, uh, a hundred billion, which would be about 93% of his worth, uh, that that Maybe, maybe was a little bit too far. And that's all Bill Gates said, by the way. He said, maybe I'd have to think about it a little more if you told me I have to be taxed at 93%. Um, and so I said, okay, you know, I, I'm all for, most billionaires uh, suck. Uh, a lot of them are, are really, really greedy, uh, shitty people. Uh, a lot of them have have profited off of exploiting labor and a whole bunch of shitty practices. Um, but you know, Bill Gates, I'm pretty sure is, uh, you know, won, won some sort of prizes. I don't know if it's a Nobel Prize, but some sort of prizes for his humanitarian and, and philanthropic efforts and, and donated a whole bunch of money and and pledged to, to donate basically every penny to his name uh, when he dies uh, will go in some way, shape or form uh, to charity. But yeah, so I learned that there's literally thousands upon thousands of uh people on Twitter who, who basically believe he should give it all back um and that he's uh a terrible crappy person. So yeah, just an illuminating uh discussion for me. But anyway, uh let's get back obviously to the topic at hand, load management. Alright, let's let's talk about load management. First of all, Kawhi Leonard. I am pro load management for Kawhi Leonard. Do it. Absolutely. It worked last season to the tune of an NBA championship for the Toronto Raptors. Okay, This guy is not somebody that you're managing for only an 82-game regular season. You're managing him for a 20-30 to 30 game playoff season after the fact. He's also somebody with a chronic injury history and a particular injury that needs to be managed. He's a guy who, yes, if you know that in the course of his career he's best playing 60-65 games, easing his way into peak form so that by the time you reach the playoffs he can be ready to go 40-45 minutes a game for that two-month marathon of the playoffs, then do it. Absolutely. He's a veteran. He's earned his stripes in the league. He's put in tons and tons of minutes throughout his whole career. Hours, thousands of hours of practice in San Antonio, in college, his entire basketball life, and now, yes, I, it's unfortunate if you bought a ticket, if you're watching a game on national TV, Kawhi Leonard's not playing, you're a little miffed. I understand that. Could the NBA do things a little bit better in terms of you know early uh, informing the public or being more transparent with which games he's going to rest? Absolutely. But if the NBA doesn't want guys to sit in on national TV games, here's an idea. Maybe don't give them back-to-back national TV games because the Clippers are obviously going to rest Kawhi on a lot of those back-to-backs, so both games out of a back-to-back should not both be on national TV, okay? The Clippers have that problem. Milwaukee's not going to get a whole bunch of back-to-backs. Orlando's not going to Sorry, national TV back-to-back. So they have back-to-backs, obviously, but they're not going to be on national TV a whole bunch. Same with Orlando, same with Indiana, same with pretty much any small market. So it's not really fair to the Clippers or any of these big market teams that they're the only ones who wouldn't be allowed to rest their players just because their national TV games happen to be during back-to-backs, or rather I should say their back-to-backs happen to be during national TV games. The Clippers are well within their right to rest Kawhi Leonard, finding Doc for saying basically uh, our strategy's working. He's healthy, but we're sticking with our strategy, which is you know rest him an appropriate amount, rest him some back to backs, but overall play him sixty sixty five games and and play him thirty three to thirty six minutes in most of those games and manage him so that he can be ready to hit peak form in the playoffs. Absolutely fine. There was nothing at all wrong with what he said. Uh, I understand why the NBA felt, I guess, they had to find him because it was a little contradictory. But what he's saying is that load management basically works. And yes, Kawhi is, is healthy to the extent that, you know, if it was a playoff game today, would he, would he be playing? Absolutely. But he knows he's still not a thousand percent. He still has an uh injury kind of chronically that that has to be monitored monitored and treated and worked on for hours upon hours a day and even when he doesn't play like I said when he rests due to load management he's still I guarantee you you know obviously at the arena for the game he's still there and shoot around observing everything being on the floor he's still probably getting treatment the entire day spending five six hours in the training room he's still doing absolutely everything that goes into that which you can't even imagine how many things with a changer uh, a chamber and a norma tech and uh you know fluids and things being hooked up to him and i've witnessed it firsthand it's not fun i guarantee you he'd rather be playing than doing all that so if you think he's just collecting a paycheck um and you know working less hard than a mailman uh, shout out twitter again that was a another fun interaction you might have caught, Uh, you're wrong. You know, Kawhi, like I said, earned it, uh, needs it, makes sense for him, veteran, injury, checks the boxes, load management, approved. Sorry, I just needed about a five-second pause uh, for load management. Uh, I'm back, recovered, and I'm ready to go. Now, R.J. Barrett. Did he need load management? No. He's freaking 19 years old. If you remember, load management created, uh, basically came to form from the Spurs, okay, because they had been calling it DNP rests, which was very funny, or DNP old. I believe they even maybe listed for Tim Duncan a couple times. But yeah, Greg Popovich is frequently called as the creator of load management in the NBA, which I'm sure he disdains because there is probably nobody in the NBA that is more of a proponent of the wussification of today's society and young players needing to play than Greg Popovich. If you look again at Tim Duncan's history, the guy played 37 minutes a game, four years of college just about. He played the heavy minutes in the later years of his college career. And then in the NBA, he played basically Forty minutes a night for 82 games for the first five or six years of his career so yes by the time he's 32 33 up there in age did they need to to manage him a little bit better again to prepare for a 20 30 game playoff which by the way he happened to play in every season of his career absolutely so yes again it made sense for Tim Duncan when he's 32, 33, 34 years old, and you're trying to manage him to play well into April, May, June, in the playoffs, okay? Made sense for him then. Made sense to rest a 35-year-old for load management. Does not make sense to rest a 19-year-old for load management. The R.J. Barrett load management discussion was an absolute joke, okay? First of all, we're not talking about this in an 82-game season, okay? If you want to check in with me after game 50, if he's averaging 40 minutes a game and you're a little perturbed about that, fine. This was game seven against the Sacramento Kings where people absolutely lost their minds about him playing 41 minutes in a quote-unquote blowout, okay? Yes, I understand they lost the game by 20, 21, whatever it was, okay? I understand when he came back in the game with five minutes left, they're down 20 or so. Has an NBA game ever been lost uh, with a team down 20 with five minutes to go? It has been done, okay? I understand that it probably is 99.9% not going to happen, but you still play basketball, okay? You still play the game out. The coach's goal is to win every game and to think really anything is possible and that you just see what happens and if by some miracle the other team took their foot off the gas, how many times have we seen crazy, crazy comebacks of teams being down 30 going into the fourth quarter, or being down 25 late second half, or early fourth quarter, or whatever it is, coming back to win the game, okay, it happens, it did not obviously happen in this situation, but... Again, David Fisdale is trying to win the game. So when you see a 20-point game with five minutes left, that's not the same as a 40-point game and you're saying, geez almighty, we have no chance in the world to win this. 20 points, you say, okay, I'm going to put our guys back in for one more run. Let's see if maybe they can cut it to 10 or whatever. And you know what? They didn't. And at that point, okay, there's a few minutes left in the game, a couple minutes left in the game. You're still down 20, whatever it was. And you think about, okay, what's our upcoming schedule? The Knicks had two days off between their next games. They knew that the next day was not even going to be a practice day. R.J. Barrett had off the next day, and then a practice day, and then a game. So with two days in between games followed when you remember the NBA just a few years ago was having back-to-back-to-backs and just a ridiculous, absurd uh, run-guys-into-the-ground schedule that was inhumane and, and just unbelievable— that now we're making a stink about a rookie playing forty minutes in a game with two days off in between the games. Just ridiculous. The other thing, David Fizdale, like I commented, I said on Twitter, I think the Knicks fan base is looking at RJ Barrett as like the second coming and, and perfect player and, and that he's you know, he's been the lone kind of bright spot in the season so far. I think David Fisdale's looking at him as a guy who, you know, I don't know the exact measurements, obviously. I'm not there, but uh, just watching him even play on TV I, I would bet his body fat percentage is is above a level that's acceptable in Miami where again David Fisdale is a, is a Spo disciple and and was there where they have unbelievably strict uh body fat percentage measurements where if you don't meet them you don't play they they banished banished James Johnson this preseason because he didn't meet their conditioning standards um so you know, again, R-R-J is has had a, a good, you know, decent start to his career, but, you know, he's averaging 16, 17, he's not being super efficient, he's turning the ball over a ton, he's, you know, I've seen plenty of things defensively that are not up to par and, and to, you know, great NBA standards, and ultimately, you know, R.J. Barrett, the top three pick, you want him to be mentioned with the, DeMar DeRozan's, Kawhi Leonard's, James Harden's, you know, the guys that are superstars in the NBA. Those guys that are superstars in the NBA, especially early in their careers, were held to unbelievably high standards pre any of this load management stuff. They were came up in the era where you played, you know, 40 minutes on a whole bunch of nights. Uh, you came out the next day and still practiced basically every day, you know, those guys were pushed to an absurd degree, the nth degree, physically. So, yes, I fully expect uh, R.J. Barrett at 19 years old to be able to handle playing 40 minutes in a bunch of games, okay? And, again, you do that early in the season because you're trying to get him up to peak conditioning. You're trying to get him ready, you know, if, God forbid, you have a 50, 55-minute something triple overtime game that he can handle it because those games do happen believe it or not. The you have to be prepared for when that happens. Uh you have to prepare him for the grind of an 82 game season. You have to prepare him eventually for the grind of a 100 to 105 game season when you count in the preseason and the playoffs. The Knicks obviously are are not looking like they'll be participants deep this season, so their season will be over in Early April, so that's another factor. You're considering that. Yes, this kid is not Kawhi yet. We're not managing him for a finals run. We're managing him to get through eighty two games, and to be able to do that, he has to get used to playing harder, longer. He has to get used to playing uh, a great deal of minutes uh, on on three, four, five nights a week, um, and, and be ready for for the grind of an NBA season. So it was a back-to-back and you're playing him, you know, 42 minutes, both nights of a back-to-back, that's a different story. If you're playing him 41 minutes with two days off in between games, making a stink about that was just one of the most laughable things uh, I've ever witnessed uh, in all of basketball. And to now see even the discussion permeating to uh, college basketball where, you know, I watched J.J. Redick for four years at Duke play 38 something minutes a night and Tim Duncan like I said play almost every minute of games and all of Duke's uh guys and, and Battier and, and Jay Williams and you know all those guys that were superbly conditioned by Coach K playing almost 40 minutes a night in every college game and you go back I I had Andy Glockner or somebody talk about can you imagine if guys had done this in college and, and if guys played 38 minutes a night in college but then you pull up uh you know Kendrick Nunn or or Justice Winslow or any of these guys in college that uh, you know are now gritty NBA players and playing heavy minutes and doing great jobs in the NBA and you know what they played thirty eight minutes in college because that was the only th- way their teams had a chance of winning games. College has freaking one or two games a week in a twenty five thirty game schedule. I promise you, you can handle playing thirty eight minutes a night in college in 25 games if you want to be able to handle playing 38 minutes a night in 82 nba games you better be able to handle that from a conditioning standpoint so like archie miller said load management in college are you freaking kidding me if people give roy williams uh, a hard time about cole anthony's minutes a son of a pro who uh haven't looked up his minutes but i bet you greg anthony played a whole bunch of minutes back in the day uh if you're giving him a hard time about his minutes in North Carolina, which they're going to need to compete in every game, it's just ridiculous. Okay, thank you for enduring another quick load management break. Just have to pace myself for a long podcast. Um, you know, again, these load management breaks are sponsored by the softies of NBA Twitter. Um, Duncan Smith, in particular, I think, paid actually for that. Uh, load management promotion. Um, so thank you, Duncan. Uh, but continuing, um, yeah, you know, like I said, uh, another aspect of load management. Okay, here's one that's okay. AAU. Loads do need to be managed more there because we run guys into the freaking ground in AAU. Okay, I'm all for common sense load management reform. Okay, college where you practice uh 5 6 times a week and then have uh maybe one or two games. No, they can handle that. They can handle that schedule at at 18 19 years old, okay? AAU at 10 11 12 13 years old, should you be playing uh 7 to 10 games in a single weekend? No. Should you be uh driving your kid uh all around eight different states in, in a one-week span and having him play in 15 different games and practice for four hours every single night with two different teams um, just so that he can get all that AAU exposure and, and play for every single AAU coach and, and get in front of all these college recruiters. Should you be doing all that? Heck no. Okay, yes, AAU is part of the problem. Like LeBron said, AAU coaches do not give a crap about really doing things the right way. For ninety eight percent of them, there might be some good ones out there. No offense to you guys, but ninety eight percent of AAU coaches, all they want to do is just win games at whatever cost, uh, even to the detriment of of their own kids. Um, and, and yeah, you know, absolutely, <laughs> AAU is is a big part of the problem. And sure, if you want to make the argument that you know, once guys reach the pros, once they become Kawai's and and Hardens and so on and so forth, that maybe they need to be coddled or managed a little bit more because of, you know, that absurd load that was on them as teenagers. I understand that, okay? I'm not going to group RJ Barrett in that right now because, again, he's 19 years old. I don't even, you know, I know he had a lot of really good influences like Steve Nash, like a a pro father, you know, like, like people like that around him that I'm I'm fairly certain did not run him into the ground playing AAU, but you know, when when there's pros that come up that maybe uh didn't have that kind of background and and were in fact guys that that had to uh play every single weekend AAU basketball for tens of hours at a time. Um yeah, you know, maybe do you need to factor in a little more rest for those guys? Sure. Uh but again, you know when you're in college when you're 18 19 20 years old uh yeah you can be expected to play 36 37 minutes a night because again the goal of a good college coach is more than just winning games themselves they they unfortunately have to prioritize winning over everything because that's what gets guys hired or fired but uh their goal should be preparing these players to to play at the next level at least for you know competitive d1 schools that actually uh raise or or send guys onto the pros the guys that go to to go excuse me go to michigan state uh indiana uh, duke schools like that their aspirations are to be professional basketball players so the best coaching is coaching that prepares them for the rigors of an nba schedule uh the tough love coaching that like you saw melvin hunt uh, in his chair throwing episode uh, prepares them for Popovich, uh, mother effing guys. And, um, you know, Rick Carlisle looking at you like a maniac and, you know, the the stuff that comes with, with NBA coaching. So yes, uh, in college, like I said, you know, we, again, also looking at minutes is a very small fraction of what actually goes on. Right. So, Like I said, we can be mad about 41 minutes and say, oh, I would have preferred for him in a blowout to play 37, 38 minutes. Sure, maybe Fizz is looking at that too, like, okay, maybe I could have played him a couple less minutes. But again, that's a small piece of the picture. When you consider that they had two days off in between games, when we on the outside have no idea how much guys are doing at practice the Knicks very well I I was around you know like obviously for a long time with the Wizards the guys that played 40 42 minutes in games they would frequently come out and practice and do next to nothing they would get spot shots up the guys that played 10 15 minutes or didn't play at all at games they would come out and have grueling two three hour practices that were sometimes you know tougher than than even games um, because we needed to ramp those guys up to a conditioning level where you know if Bradley Beal or John Wall got hurt somebody else needed to be ready to step up and and you know go from playing 10 minutes a game to to 40 minutes a game so you know the goal of all this is is to manage guys effectively to you know thrive in their role but also be ready for uh, a bigger role if, if one comes available to them which ultimately is what uh 99% of players uh likely want so um you know, again, like I said, we we have access to, to very little information. There's a whole lot more there um, than just the minutes. I even saw uh, Scott Brooks had a good quote. He said, I believe in load management in the overall picture. It's easy to focus on game minutes, but I get to see all the other things we do. Meaning, like I just said, you know, it's not just about playing 40 minutes in a game it's if he plays 40 minutes in a game what's he doing the next day what's he doing two days after that and if the answers are uh we have it well managed and he can do very light things for the next couple days then yes there's not much of an issue there with playing uh 40 minutes in a game if you're going to come out the next couple days and basically just you know do a little spot shooting so uh rj yeah not not a story there Speaking of RJ, um, let's talk about the Knicks for a second, okay? David Fisdale, apparently on the hot seat. Uh, Again, maybe a very hot seat, depending on how you talk to, okay? Steve Mills, let me just uh, pull back up his Wikipedia for a second, okay? He played, you know, college basketball, 1978 to 81 at Princeton. Smart guy, okay? Uh, He worked for the NBA for a long time. He became the Chief Operating Officer and Sports Business President of Madison Square Garden in 2003. Okay. He supervised the finances and business operations of not just the Knicks, but the New York Rangers, the New York Liberty. He also supervised boxing, college basketball, and track and field. Went to work for Magic Johnson Enterprises. Came back 2013 as the Executive Vice President and General Manager. After the whole Phil Jackson snafu, uh, it was announced Scott Perry become the next GM and Steve Mills would be the new president of the organization taking over for Phil Jackson in 2017. So to recap, 2003, he joins the organization, chief operating officer, sports business president, sticks around for six years or so, leaves in 2009, comes back in 2013. What do you think is the commonality here if you are with the Knicks from 2003 to 2009 and then 2013 to now? Is it an astounding level of basketball knowledge surrounding surrounding yourself with Greg Popovich and uh, Rick Carlisle and basketball savants and R.C. Buford and all the best basketball minds? Or is it possibly uh cuddling up and being the one guy who always stayed in the good graces of jim dolan and told him what he wanted to hear and was a yes man and yeah that's uh yeah i think it's pretty clear which side i'm on okay he's a business person steve mills is a sports executive Businessman. He came on the business side. He did business for Magic Johnson. He did business for the NBA. He did business for Madison Square Garden. He is not a basketball guy. Okay, Just because he played college basketball, he has no NBA coaching experience of any kind. He has no real NBA front office experience anywhere except the Knicks, which has been a recent thing since 2013 when he was given that job basically because of his proximity to Dolan and because Dolan wanted another yes man in the building, okay? He mismanaged a whole bunch of things. He's hired a whole bunch of failed coaches time and time again in his time in New York, and now we're going to let him fire another coach? I'm not saying David Fisdale is God's gift to coaching, okay? I'm not even sure he's done a good job, much less a great job with the Knicks. What I am sure about, though, is that That roster is crap. And you know who puts together that roster? Mills and Perry, okay? You know who hired Mills and Perry? James Dolan, who now has hired a whole bunch of people in a list that's way too long and that you can turn Bondi or Isola yelling about on that you don't need me to repeat. And I need to, again, carefully manage my load to get through this whole podcast, okay? Okay that they should not get to fire another coach that should not be another decision they get to make okay let me let me throw some numbers out there at you eighty seven one hundred two ninety two one hundred two eighty three ninety five do you know a lot of teams that win n b a games scoring ninety five points ninety two points eighty seven points The emphasis, if you listen to anybody, if you just paid attention to what the team talked about for the Knicks this preseason, was playing defense. They worked on that relentlessly in training camp. And you know what? When I watched them play, holding teams to 102 points, 108 points, 104 points, 95 points, 98 points. Again, I know there's more advanced analytics. I know I should be using... Points per possession, all that stuff, offensive rating, defensive rating, fine. Okay, But the Knicks, I've even said their identity, the only chance they have of winning games is holding teams under 100 points. Do you know how rarely that happens in today's NBA? Do you know how hard it is to win a game scoring 98, 95 points? It's really freaking hard, especially with the three ball and especially just with the style of offenses today. The Knicks offense is poop It's literally poop. Okay? And it's not on David Fisdale. It's on starting Taj you have Taj Gibson as your starting center. You have Frank, who I know, you know, Knicks fans are obsessed with and I like the guy. I think he'll have a long NBA career. But he's he's a backup. He he can't score. You know, you can't play a starting point guard in the NBA today who can't shoot the ball. Who gives you four point games? You just can't. He can play 10, 15 minutes. He can be a solid energy guy off the bench. You can come in, defend, run some plays for your offense, You know, make some hustle plays, do the little things. I love those type of players. But those type of players, for the most part, are not starting point guards in the NBA. They're TJ McConnells. Okay? Marcus Morris had nine points. R.J. Barrett, thank God. We managed his load a little better in this one. Only played 24 minutes. Gave us nine points, one rebound, one assist, one steal. Four of 11 from the field. Off the bench, we had Dotson give us 10. We had Portis give us four. We had Kevin Knox, who I just don't think is all that good, give us nine. That is a bad, bad roster, okay? Yes, Julius Randle has not been playing all that well. He did have 20 and 16. He is the guy maybe that that has the most upside there and has had the most, you know, flashes of, of occasional greatness in his NBA career. But he also, you know, basically got thrown out of LA because he was basically a bust there. Goes to New Orleans, revitalizes his career a little bit under Alvin Gentry, seems to figure it out. Comes to New York under a, a really short-term contract, you know, for a guy that... Uh, a lot of teams had a lot of questions about, but also obviously saw the talent. And so far, you know, it's a short 10-game sample, but he hasn't been all that great. He hasn't really performed. And, you know, w- would the Knicks get this offseason? Yeah, they struck out. They Their their plan didn't work. I mean, there there's no dispute there. Obviously, they put all their eggs into a basket that ended up not happening. And instead they pivoted and and signed you know solid Wayne Ellington is is a great ninth man, Taj Gibson is a great third big, fourth big, Bobby Portis as a reserve big fine okay Marcus Morris backs out of a deal with the Spurs, so you know can we keep him for a year? Great, sure, but that's not. Where is the talent here? Where How do you get to 100 points with that group? It was painstaking to even get to 87. And again, I know simple points. Yes, we're all about offensive rating and the more advanced analytics. I don't care what you do. If you can't score 100 points in an NBA game, you're going to lose almost every time. Okay? It's just a crappy, crappy, crappy roster. And that falls... On the front office. Okay? And you know what? (laughs) They've... Yeah. It it hasn't helped that Mitchell Robinson's been out. That Dennis Smith Jr., your starting point guard, has been out. That now Alfred's been out. It's hard to, to win games when you're cycling through and then have three to five guys out on any given night. It's also hard to win games when your freaking owner makes, demands the front office to address the media post-game in an impromptu press conference. One of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. I'm all about accountability and and being more forthcoming and, and articulating your plans to the public. That's all great. But if the owner is having a temper tantrum during a game in his skybox and decides to basically chew out the front office and say, you guys are going to go stand down there and talk to the media and make some crap up about uh, maybe laying the groundwork for us to fire our coach and how we're not playing hard enough. It's ridiculous. Okay, I'm a Redskins fan. I know all about ownership and competence. I know all about a guy who, for 20, 25 years, is going to continue to think everybody else is the problem who's going to cycle through 10, 15 head coaches, many of them legends and legendary names who just couldn't find a way to win there, must have been all about the coach. I know all about a guy who can't take criticism from the media, who fluctuates wildly, fluctuates, excuse me, wildly between... Saying I'm all hands off. I'm trusting my basketball people. I'm trusting my guys. I'm just going to be a fan. I'm going to be an observer and let them do their jobs. And I'm going to have my hand in every single decision. And I'm going to be on top of everything. And I'm going to yell at people at halftime. And tell them they need to do better. And tell them to go address the media. And fire this person. And fire that person. And get rid of another coach. He has no idea. Had to run in NBA team. He has proven that. Over a long long time. And if you don't love David Fisdale. David Fisdale's undoing. If anything with the New York Knicks. Was an inability to get along with Chris Daps Porzingis. Newsflash. David Fisdale's undoing in Memphis. And an inability to get along with Marcus Saul. So. If our franchise cornerstone is a Euro who is enormously talented, shoots the crap out of the ball, has moves for days, is a unicorn, but, you know, has a few questions about his toughness, his mental toughness, is the best coach to hire for him a guy who literally just got fired because he came head-to-head? With Marcus All, maybe not. I mean, you know the. It's just. It's sad. It it really is sad because you could tell the Knicks have such a a passionate fan base, and you know they want to win so badly. But, you know the. Success leaves footprints. Losing also leaves footprints. Is it the problem of the coach who's been there for not even two years? Or is it the owner who just can't get right for a long, long time? Personally, I think the answer is pretty clear. I think David Fisdale is a fine NBA coach. Maybe not the greatest in the world, he's not a magician but I guarantee you right now he's looking at the Lakers at 7-2 and two and having the best defense in the league and thinking, wow, if I could coach my guy, Bron, in L.A., if I was there instead of Frank Vogel and these situations were flipped and Frank Vogel had an Orlando-type roster like he had a few years ago and I could coach LeBron and A.D. and Aver Bradley and a bunch of tough-minded, hard-nosed guys playing my style of gritty basketball that I like, that I learned from Spo and learned from Pat Riley. I think I'd be looking pretty darn good too. Frank Vogel, you watch the offense in L.A. People love to complain about the the Knicks' offense. <clears throat> Frank Vogel is running a 1970s offense. They have like three plays. They have they run turn five, the play that drove people nuts about Jim Boylan posting up Robin Lopez last season where literally it's just a down screen, not even like a down screen. It's a turnout is what it's called. Just like coming off the post player. You hit the two guard that comes off the post player, and he just throws the ball into the post. That's the whole play. They're running that for Anthony Davis like half their plays. It's the most basic offense in the history of mankind. It's not about X's and O's. (laughs) It's about chills and Joe's. There's no magical scheme. Toronto is not scoring because of Nick Nurse's genius. They're scoring because Pascal Siakam is a beast. Because Fred Van Fleet Kyle Lowry are beasts. Because they can score and get to the rim and shoot and do 10 million different things. Milwaukee is not just because of Bud's genius. He's smart. Giannis is an MVP talent. He puts so much, as much pressure, more pressure maybe, on a defense than LeBron does in transition. He's a one-man fast break. Milwaukee doesn't run any plays. They just have five guys standing outside the three-point line. And Giannis puts pressure on the defense and penetrates. And then they kick the ball out and shoot threes. That's not rocket science. Denver. Runs everything through one of the most brilliant passers, if not the most brilliant big man passer of all time. Houston doesn't run any plays. They run a couple pick and rolls. James Harden has the ball. James Harden isos. Jack's a whole bunch of threes. I'm seeing these threads. Tommy Beer on Twitter listing 700 different stats that the Knicks rank poorly in, that they call the most isos or that they all the fewest pick-and-rolls in the league, those stats are wrong. <clears throat> no, literally, they're, they're wrong. Like, it's a perfect example of uh, people that say numbers don't lie. They're lying there. Okay, I've, I've talked about this before. I'll say it one more time briefly because, again, this has been a draining podcast and I need to manage this load. Synergy numbers are not real analytics. Anybody using them to paint an entire picture or make bold claims like the Knicks run the third most post-ups in the NBA is lying to you. Synergy numbers only take into account the final result of the possession. In other words, the Knicks could run eight pick-and-rolls on a play, but if the play ends with Alonzo Trier going one-on-one and having to create his own shot and rising up for an elbow jumper? You know how many pick-and-rolls are going to count in Synergy? Zero. You know the only thing that that counts then in Synergy? An Alonzo Trier-ISO. The Knicks ranked dead last in the league in points scored off cuts. They're running cutting action on just 3.6% of their offensive plays. No, they're not. That's only the plays that end in a result, as in a shot or a turnover, off a cut. They might be running cutting action on 70% of their plays. But if they're not able to throw the ball or hit any cutters or do anything with that, then yes, it's not going to show up because if a possession ends and Marcus Moore is taking five dribbles and Jack jacking a three, that's the only thing that's going to show up. It's going to count as an iso. They're top five in post-up frequency. Okay. What else should they be running? Nick Nurse is not some genius because he has a good drive and kick offensive system. He's a genius because he has brilliant basketball players. Eric Spolstra has Jimmy Butler and Goran Dragic to put pressure on the defense. And Justice Winslow to read the game as a point guard. The Knicks have three point guards who can't shoot. Do you know how absurd that is in today's NBA? To have three point guards where defenses can go under the screen on pretty much all of them? Where you have one of the best role men, if not the best role men in the league, in Mitchell Robinson. But if the defense goes under every single screen... You can't get rolls that way. It's really, really hard to get rolls if you can't make the defense go over the screen. Their only real guy that can even handle really in picking rolls is R.J. Barrett, and like I said, he's not the most efficient in the world yet. He's still turning the ball over a ton. He's not shooting unbelievably. We compare them to the Suns for God knows why now on. on Tommy's thread, roster turnover, and unfamiliarity. Four of the six players that have logged over 200 minutes for Phoenix weren't on the team last season. Sure. But they got competent NBA players. They got Dario Saric, who's a gritty-ass, hustle, do-everything, play-relentlessly-hard guy who... Is a culture guy who doesn't feel the need to talk about it every three seconds like Marcus Morris does and actually goes out and does it. They got a tough mother effer in Aaron Baines who's shooting 50% from three. <laughs> they got a real point guard in Ricky Rubio. They got a rookie who can make some shots in Cam Johnson. They got Frank Kaminsky who's a stretch big who was actually making plays and playing good basketball. Their front office went out and got productive NBA players. The Knicks front office didn't. (laughs) They just didn't get a point guard. They don't have a point guard still. (coughs) Forgive me. I, I... I... That was like 41 minutes. I just passed the 41-minute mark, actually. As you can see, the fatigue is just reaching an all-time high. I'm on minute 45. <clears throat> I'm trying to tough it through to the end of the game. It's a two-point game. Last second, I I've I got the trainers. I've got, you know, the, the GM. I've got the bloggers. I've got... The blog boys, i have got the cheerleaders, everybody's telling me, have a seat, manage that load, <clears throat> slow down, and you know what, I'm just, I'm pushing through it, I'm, I'm gonna finish this game, you can't hold me out, you can't hold a champion down, you just can't, the Knicks have a whole bunch of problems. David Fisdale might not be the perfect coach. Firing him in year two to promote Keith Smart or hire Mark Jackson or whatever the heck is not the answer. Have some accountability. Tell Jim Dolan. Uh, I Actually, I don't know. What am I saying? Tell Jim Dolan. You can't tell him anything. What are you going to tell him? He has no idea. He's listening to the only guys who, again, just said yes to him every time. Yes, Jim, you want to ban media outlets because they said bad things about you? Let's do it. Yes, Jim, you want to hire Larry Brown and give him a whole bunch of money to coach a team he has no interest in really coaching? Let's do it. Yes, Jim, you want to... Hire Phil Jackson and give him the most money ever to be a GM, which he's never done. While trying to run a triangle system that doesn't fit this personnel at all. And has basically become outdated in today's NBA. Let's do it. Yes, Jim, you want to hire Jeff Hornacek out of the blue and quickly then sour on him and fire him? Let's do it. Surround yourself with people who tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Advice for Jim Dolan. Listen to this podcast. Learn how to run a basketball team. Or, maybe better yet, sell the team. What else do I have for you? John Morant, having his load managed. I'm also pro that. That's fine. It's not that fun for Memphis fans because they're probably not winning games because of it. They're 2-7, and, and they're playing their star rookie point guard about 27 minutes a game. But at least he actually has an injury and had injuries that need to be managed and needs to ease his way back from it. So as a result, they're not going to win a lot of games. But you know what? John Moran is damn fun to watch, and he's going to be damn good. If you didn't see latest YouTube video, what makes John Morant so good? I took the d- in-depth look, three, four, five games of theirs. Used three of them, I think, to make the video. Ultimately, he is phenomenal. Same things I pointed out in his college video, college scouting video. Just reading pick and rolls, keeping his guy in jail, keeping his guy on his back, getting to his floater, finishing with his left hand around the basket. He's going to be a really, really good player for a really long time. He's going to lead the league in assists soon enough. guy can really, really go. Cleveland, a pleasant surprise. Clown Sexton, tenacious defensively. I know a lot of people had questions about the Garland-Sexton pairing. Garland seems to be allowing Sexton to focus more on defense, though. He's getting his points, a lot of them by... Blowing up dribble handoffs, taking it himself in transition. Being an absolute pest. And on top of that, he can make threes, he can shoot the ball, he can play too. I underestimated Cleveland. Credit to them. Bayline's done a great job. But again, they have have some adults in the room. They have some good veteran players. And their young rookies are, are really darn good too. Orlando, super disappointing so far. Aaron Gordon, just, again, I've said, always seems to be something missing there. They're they're a good example, again. You know, sometimes front offices just don't really get it. I I know the the Hammond folk, uh, they love those super long. You know, they want to have a team with 10 Giannises, all these switchable defenders. And they, they have a good defense, again, they have a good coach. And maybe, again, it's very early in the season, obviously, and, you know, they can, they can turn it around. I know they're shooting a much lower percentage than they probably should be. But do they have enough scoring there, you know, to build an offense around? I mean, I don't even know what. You know, D.J. Augustine obviously was great last season, but, you know, you're running a whole lot of pin downs for Terrence Ross. Whole lot of vooch post ups. Aaron just, you know, always seems to leave a little something to be desired. Phoenix, whole lot of fun, like I said. They've been awesome to watch. Devin Booker, legit. Legit star. Minnesota's up and down. Like seeing how they're competing, though. Like the culture Ryan Saunders has established there. But it'll be a good test, you know, between Phoenix and Minnesota. Like Cat Booker, whole guys that had a whole bunch of questions about them going forward. <clears throat> now you know Phoenix six and three, Minnesota five and four. Have had their first a kind of extended taste of success in a long time, or. In their careers in some cases. Can they, you know, can they can they keep it going? Can they earn it night in and night out when you have a target on your back more and teams know that, you know, you're a playoff contender. You're a legit team. Forgive me. Another 10 seconds. Load management pause. While you're at it, please uh, check out today's second podcast sponsor besides Duncan Smith. Charmin. When you need your load to be managed to the fullest, check out Charmin. Hashtag CharminSoft. Enjoy the go. That's their tagline. I didn't even know that, but I just Googled them, and that's their tagline. Thank you, Charmin, for sponsoring today's Load Management Podcast. Appreciate all you guys. I have the best fans in the world, even if some of you are phenomenal softies who think that players should play 30 minutes or think that the Memphis Grizzlies SB Nation Twitter account was being racist by tweeting, Breaking news, John Morant is not a human being. He is a living, breathing bucket. That apparently in today's woke society is racist. To call a guy a living, breathing bucket, it is clear that the Memphis Grizzlies SB Nation account is racist and hates John Morant. There is no possibility that they merely were saying John Morant is not a human being, but he is a robot who is amazing at basketball. Like you might say about Luka Doncic, or Larry Bird, or Tyler Hero, or Dirk Nowitzki, or Steve Nash. I'm sure nothing like that has ever been said about any white player. I'm sure they may be attempting to praise his athletic talents, but really, they are erasing this man's humanity. This happens way too often to black people, black men, to justify horrific treatment in our society. If you had any doubts, by the way, I am reading verbatim actual Twitter commentary in response to Grizzly Bear Blues using that in a tweet. Not everything is racist. I understand lots of things are. I understand that plenty of black athletes have felt marginalized or that they're told they're just athletes or not to comment on things outside of basketball or dehumanized or any of these things might have some legitimate social something to them. But the Memphis Grizzlies SB Nation Twitter account is not that person. Saying that John Morant is not a human being did not mean John Morant is less than a human and does not get human rights. It meant we fucking love John Morant and he's amazing at basketball. You don't need to be offended about everything. Stop being offended about everything. Please, I'm begging you, go outside, read a book, manage your load, play basketball, watch basketball, watch Scout with Brian, blog, do anything other than Than being constantly offended online. Please. I'm begging you. I'm so proud of myself. We're past the 56 minute mark. We're into quadruple overtime. Game's been a grind. I'm just fighting through it though. You can't stop me. You can't hold me down. I want to shout out. My amazing patrons, okay, I have almost 300 people, patreon.com slash Brian. I appreciate you all tremendously. If you want a shout out on the podcast, DM me, I'll give you a shout out next time. Those people literally pay the bills, keep me alive doing this. Because my stuff is a little controversial, because I haven't resorted to clickbait and hot takes and A lot of the stuff that's pervasive in basketball media today, I'm not with a big site, a big name, a big blog. I'm on my own. YouTube pays about 50 cents per video that takes me three, four days to do. This podcast pays about $10 for every five podcasts I put out. I really need your help patreon.com slash Brian. Again, you can join for even $2 a month in exchange. Get a whole bunch of bonus videos, bonus chats, extra content, private Slack, private Periscope, unfettered access to me. Really, really appreciate your support on there. Again, if you ever need to know where to find my stuff, Scout with Brian on Twitter, Scout with Brian on Instagram, Scout with Brian on YouTube, ScoutwithBrian dot com. If you're a newer follower, go there, ScoutwithBrian.com, catch up, my Hoops High Podcast with Alex Kennedy, my Reddit AMAs, whole bunch of advice, how do I get started in basketball? What did I do in basketball? Did I work in the NBA? Did I scout? What did I do? All those questions answered time and time again there. Go find that stuff, it's good. It'll help you. Any final thoughts as I'm on my last load breath? Stop being soft. Stop complaining about everything. Stop trying to outwoke everyone. You're plenty woke enough already. Appreciate the game. Stop hating on everyone else. Know that coaches generally have an idea what they're doing. And Jim Dolan is probably not a very good owner. Appreciate you guys listening. Please subscribe. Leave a five-star review. Tell your friends. Manage your loads. Appreciate it tremendously. Thank you guys again. Just under 60 minutes. I'm tapped out. I'm on my dying breath. I'm at the maximum. Literally, I can't go over 60 minutes. So I appreciate you guys. Scout with Brian. Patrons, thank you again. Talk soon. Hashtag talk soon. Hashtag Yoda. Later. Later. Thank you.